it's good when you're starting out laughing. Hello and welcome to another episode of Soul Care with me, Angie Fatal. I am here with my friend, Laura Laforti. Very good, Angie. I think I didn't do the last name. I love it. Let's, okay. move, let's change Laforti. it like that. That's my new name. On the episode where I interviewed my friend James, his drag queen name is... forgot what it is. Loretta Good Love Child. And I, oh, I brutalized it. It was so bad. Over and over. I said it over and over again. And it was, it didn't matter. It was fine. Because I wanted to go, love child. <laughs> and he was like, okay. Uh, so we're here. I'm here with Lara. And um, she has lovingly, graciously agreed to let me interview her. And I will try to make eye contact with you the whole time, but it's you're the you're the story midwife, so do what you need to do. <laughs> Don't worry about me. I try to stay still. Yeah. <laughs> so Lara is a story midwife. She's Italian. She lives in Portland, Oregon. And I would say she might disagree with me, but she's not allowed to or she can disagree with me but it's my podcast so I have editing rights I think she's a genius she is much like my friend Kathy who I interviewed last week a connector of people and a connector of people that deserve to be valued not for what our culture or western culture decides is valuable but what is actually valuable. And, and I just realized there's a similarity between you and my friend Kathy Escobar, because she works with a, I just want to pause and say, I think that's garbage trucks. So we're living in the real world. And it's Laura crying in the back. <laughs> Good. So Kathy works with a population that is vulnerable in a different way. And you, I wouldn't say your population is necessarily vulnerable, but ignored for sure. And I just realized also while I'm interviewing you that that is almost the, like if I could paint a picture of what I'm trying to do with this podcast, and I didn't even realize it when I asked to interview you, it's what this podcast is about. So it's all accidental because apparently I don't think through things all that well. That's Um, all we are talking today. It's just kismet. (laughs) Uh, But... That's what this podcast is about, is about interviewing what the world thinks are normal people doing extraordinary things. And I think a lot of the people who I've met through you are doing extraordinary things. So Laura's here. I could talk about all the things she does, but then we'd just be listening to my voice. And I don't know if that would be boring, but... I would love to listen to your voice for the rest of the day. Okay. So, hi, Laura. Welcome. Thank you, Angie, and thank you for the very generous introduction. Of course, I disagree, but let's not fight. Also. No, we won't, because... It just doesn't... It's not you can interview me at some point oh. and then do your own edits. Oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> okay, good deal. So, how I met Laura was um, through something... I'm going to let her talk about it, but something called Vanport Mosaic. We did a 
like we randomly saw a poster near our house and we were familiar with what the Vanport tragedy was, but we had never heard anybody talking about it. It was like books at the library, historical books at the library. And I think a PBS documentary, OPB documentary. OPB came later. It came just but last there was year. an old I'm one. I'm sure there was something. That was like, we didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. So we were kind of piecing it together and then we saw the poster. We went and watched the stories and we both were transformed. Randomly, I just remembered that it was right after a shooting at a school. Yes. And I was sitting next to a young woman and her mother, and we were in PCC, which is a community college here in Portland, Oregon, and the girl was terrified to be in that room. And it was, I just remember that, because I remember, it's not the same thing, but it all now I'm realizing it was trage- It was a tragedy that we were remembering. A tragedy had just occurred, and we are in a school. So that's a story for another time because we haven't, as a country, have not dealt with that. So, but um, Todd and I were changed, and then he signed up to do. I should just let you tell what it is because I realize I'm like, he signed up to do something and nobody even knows what you do. So can you tell people what you do? We're still doing it. Yeah. Tell people what you do. All right. So um, at that time when we met, it was one of the many times in my life where I was, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> so that's maybe sounds, one weekend. That sounds that familiar I, to this. And my own topic. <laughs> yeah. To my own podcast. So... So it was a moment, so this project, the Vanport, at that moment, it wasn't called the Vanport Mosaic. It was just the Vanport project. Okay. So it was a project, it was an oral history project um, that I was doing with committee members. So what I like to do, what my passion is, is to tell story with and not about people. Mm-hmm. So I designed this participatory oral history project around Vanport, and I had a you know, fiscal sponsor and organizational partner. And at that moment, when we met, I didn't have anyone. I was left with this uh, project that I wanted to continue because we had many people who were, after six months of doing it, they were excited, including myself. And we had many elders from the Vanport community waiting to be interviewed. And so suddenly... um, Again, as a pattern now that I'm thinking, I find myself with like a baby that I didn't plan on (laughs) raising. Somebody didn't teach you about family planning? I guess not. I didn't understand the instructions. We'll call your mother later. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) Get any useful information from her. So at that moment, I, um, I wanted to continue this project. We, many of us wanted to continue that, uh, the collection of these stories. Um, and we were kind of orphans. We didn't have a financial support. We didn't have a, uh, the gear. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a place. And so through partnerships, I was able to offer, continue offering these free workshops to uh, learn together how to tell stories with community yeah. members. So when Todd signed up, I was doing this workshop uh, I think it was at the Rebuilding Center because they offered space so, yeah. and I had uh, uh, in-kind gear uh, land by, um, at that moment, 
Portland community media now, Open Signal, and there were many people who said yes. Many people from different walk of life and skills and interests, and Todd mm-hmm. was one of them. Yeah, and he came back completely blown away. I do want to say, mm-hmm. <clears throat> apparently I've got a frog in my throat. Um, would you tell people what Vanport is, or sure. do you want me to? You can you can do it. How about I do it and then you correct me? Okay, or not, if you say Well, it right. if I say it right, <laughs> then you can give me brownie points or something. I realize I'm saying all these Americanisms, too. I realize that because I've lived overseas that sometimes I'm, my brain is going, these, I don't think these go across language. And but I then, translate them, and then I use them in a very improper times. Yeah. yeah, that's So good. thank you for yeah. enriching my vocabulary. <clears throat> and your meeting today. Yes. <laughs> Brownie points. So as I understand Vanport, so during World War II... We were America, being we, because I know there's other people that listen to this podcast in other places. So in Portland, Oregon, in the United States, we were trying to build a ship a day for the war effort. And there was no place to house the people that were streaming in from all over the United States for good pay and actual jobs, because I think we were also... the struggling like people were struggling all over over the United States so people were streaming into Portland Kaiser who I don't know if he was doing the hospital at the time not yet he was just a rich guy entrepreneur entrepreneur entrepreneur. okay so he bought this piece of land I'm not going to go into detail but it was there's a lot of things that happen. I think he had another piece of land chosen first, and then did it fall through, or am I making that up? Anyway. It's a good story. So, yeah. So we have this piece of land. It was never meant to be have housing on it. It's a floodplain, but I think also it hadn't flooded in a while. So it wasn't like he set out to drown people, but it was supposed to be temporary. They built a bunch of very quick houses and apartments, There was a theater, there was grocery stores, there was a school, and for the most part, there are are definitely racial dynamics that went on and racism that went on in this multicultural place, but there was also integrated schools, the theater was integrated. Community spaces where people, people mingled, yeah. So wherever there's people, there's racism, but for the most part, it was integrated. And people were working night shifts, day shifts, on top of each other, trying to build ships. And, um, and then the war ended. The war ended. And people kept living there, because why wouldn't you? Because they were comfortable and they had community. And some people had moved away... But a lot of people chose to stay in the Northwest, too. Many people, especially because of the racism that you mentioned, didn't have any other choice than staying. Yeah, because they couldn't buy houses anywhere in Portland. We won't get into redlining and all the other racist stuff that happens in this city. But it was a pretty vibrant place. Then there was unseasonable rain, like... Yeah, it was it was a warm uh, season, unusually warm. So there was snow melt, mm-hmm. lots of rain, 
the levy broke? Actually, it wasn't the levy. It was uh, the railroad embankment that was serving as the oh, levy. God. So there you have it. I, I guess I knew that there was a train connected to it, but it was never intended to be a levy. Of course not, no. Okay, and then there's a lot of things that happened too, which is they told people not to worry. To, they sent out notes that people should stay in their houses, that everything was going to be fine. They were wrong. People stayed in their houses. The levee broke. And was it 30 feet of water? I actually don't know the amount of water. But it was like over 20 feet. Because I've seen, uh, Lara has a, when you when we do this tour of where the house houses used to be, because there is nothing left, um, but like a, a slab cement slab. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a pole that goes as high as the water was coming in. So people were trying to get out, there were limited roads out, people were running out, there were buses trying to get in, people died, and there is still no number of how many people died. People lost their homes, like it literally picked up houses and washed them away. And then people just tried to get on with their lives. The people that were affected by this were poor people all from all races, mm-hmm. there were uh, Japanese Americans that had just been released from, I don't call them internment camps, I call them concentration camps. Um, so they've just survived Japanese concentration camps in the United States, are just starting to settle in because all their land was taken away. Um, and then the levy, the non levy levy breaks. And Native Americans. Of course, yeah. African Americans. Everyone really. Yeah. They were uh, at that moment. There were eighteen, over eighteen thousand people still living there, and so they all became homeless in a matter of a day. Really. Yeah. And that's when people's generosity and true racism, like, floats to the surface like oil and water. <laughs> it just goes up. <laughs> like you see, real amazing. Mm-hmm generosity and the human spirit and then you see real shitty human beings Mm -hmm. so what Lara has been doing is there are people still living that survived that and she with a group of volunteers has been collecting the stories because this is a this is a tragedy that happened in the United States that most people don't know about and I have had enough encounters with people that are from here that don't know anything about it. So I educate just about everybody I meet and they're like, either they're like, oh, that's why the word Vanport is everywhere. Mm. Cause it was Vancouver, Portland. Mm-hmm. Vancouver is across the river in Washington and then Portland. <clears throat> I don't know what's going on with my throat, but anyway. Um, so that's what she's doing. When we talk about Vanport, we're talking about the stories of the survivors. And because that was World War II, the end of World War II, those people are aging and dying. And so the hope is to collect as many stories from as many different people as humanly possible. But also, a lot of those people are older and it's been difficult to find them, right? Mm -hmm. So... I've now told the Vanport history. I'm not going to add anything. The only things I would add is that 
uh, Vanport at the uh, peak of the population became the second largest city of Oregon and it was the largest um, federal housing project in the United States, if not in the world really. So uh, when you talk about you know, um, the houses and the school, there were actually five schools. It was, an, an, it was a city. It was a real second city. largest city in the in Oregon. In, in Oregon, Oregon. Mm-hmm. all of a sudden I was thinking it was the United States, but <laughs> you know, as a federal housing project was the largest. So it's a city and a federal housing project, mm-hmm. and it's the second largest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it is. It is an incredible story, even just from a yeah. urban planning, yeah. city history type of. Even if there hadn't have been a tragedy, yeah, exactly, still... it would still be. A very important because it is a story about housing mm-hmm. and, and that yeah, is a story. And racial lines mm-hmm. and, and many patterns that we still still mm-hmm. see today so my personal interest uh, in this story was first of all I came here from New York I'm obviously not from anywhere specifically really? yes <laughs> <laughs> I do hear a slight accent no no it's not it's, I'm from the Bronx oh I hear that too <laughs> Uh, so when I moved here with my family, um, I, I w- was interested in understanding why this city looks the way it does, which is weird, but not in the interesting and funky and hipster way we think. It's just a obviously unhealthy uh, place because when you come on a, to a city that um, presents itself as a progressive liberal mm-hmm. place and it is you know, incredibly white and homogeneous, there's something to understand yeah. better. And so I became interested in understanding where the heck I ended up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, dude. Because especially if you've been in New York, which... I've been in so many places and never been in a place like this. There's something um, unique, not in the sense this is a more interesting place than anyone else, any other place, but there's something... Um, a little unsettling when you come as an outsider. Yeah. If you if you want to see it, of yes. course that that's the other interesting side of the story is that you can actually go through your life in Portland without ever ask that question. Yes. So personally, I wanted to understand what was my new home. What what what? How did how did it become this place? Right. And so the story of Vanport uh, was one of the first. Uh, story that I encounter and the story that I encounter was the story of a flood that happened in 1948 where only 15 or 17 people uh, died and I hadn't um, even heard that many yeah that's the official record <clears throat> which of course it's all to be yeah question. it's not true but that was the story that I would find and it's what I call an, a stuck story right often it's a stuck narrative we have our own personally mm-hmm. <laughs> individual yeah. Uh, stock narratives and we also as as communities as uh, countries uh, we are stuck in certain narratives that we repeat over and over and they lose first of all they lose interest because who wants to hear about this every May (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. because it doesn't seem like a big deal right and so what this project uh, became and still is is this um, effort to tell the whole story, the whole story with all the, the discrepancies because it's kind of too late to find what happened. Yeah. Uh, Can mm-hmm. you speak, just as you're going mm-hmm. on, what I think I learned at maybe two Vanport 
um, festivals ago was the reason they can't, they don't know is because of the way people were sleeping and living. Can you, do you know what sure, I'm talking yeah. about? Can you explain so, that? This was a very vibrant city with lots of people um, also sharing, you know, their homes and so many people didn't even uh, register themselves as citizen of this city. So when the flood happened, um, it's very hard to know who was there. So we will never know. But the other aspect is that who gets to tell the story, which mm -hmm. is really kind of the, you know, in the power. inquiry of, of all my work and kind of life journey is who gets to tell the story, mm -hmm. right? And so often in history, the story is told by who has the power. And especially back then, the power was not shared by those impacted by this tragedy, right? Yeah. So the stories that that are documented are really uh, a little bit, um, you know, it's, there's, they're limited. Let's put it mm -hmm. this way. They're limited. So the moment you open up a space where people can reclaim their narratives and they, you ask them more generous and spacious and expansive questions, mm -hmm. um, the, the whole story comes out. Yeah. And that's why this was supposed to be a six month project and we are in the fifth year of collecting stories. We still have people reaching out and say, what about my story? What about the story of my community? Or what about these questions? Have you thought of this? So it became a collective um, inquiry in this, on what this story is. What it is now, this story is also a little bit of a, an aspiration, right? Because mm -hmm. when we tell stories, we also tell the story that we, we wish <laughs> it, it yeah. is, right? Yeah. For ourselves. But also what, what the Vampor survivors now and former residents like to share now with us is how they build a community across, diver, uh, across differences, across racial lines, across, mm -hmm. across difficulties. And so that's, I think it's also the message, it's the, vamp, the spirit of Vampor, the legacy is, well, they did it. They didn't know how to live together Mm -hmm. it, they didn't even some they didn't even see each other before black people didn't uh, mingle with white people they, they 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 were separated and sudden suddenly they were going to school together as mm -hmm. kids and so the people we are honoring today are the kids of Vanport mm -hmm. and so their their stories are truly a, a first of all it's a multi-layer multi-perspective story yeah. where it's not one experience the idea is that we create a mosaic and so now it is we are at a point where this is becoming the legacy and what can we learn from it yeah so that's kind of the the vamp so then in the process again going back to not having a plan and ended yeah. up with many children yeah. <laughs> <laughs> taking over your life what was supposed to be a six-month oral history project, it is now what we are calling a, a platform for memory activism that uh, amplifies, honors, presents, and preserves many, the many silence mm -hmm. histories, not just the vampire story. Yeah, what was that? Um, what was that? S you invited Todd and I to go hear that musical and... That was Maxfield to Vampire. Maxfield to Vanport, and that had been a logging? Yeah, it was a logging community in rural Oregon, Maxville, and 
it is another uh, silent history mm. of a black community, thriving black community uh, in a very white yes. <laughs> uh, uh, area and how they build, they thrive in spite of all of it. Mm. And people are still here. So let's take a little break and we'll be right back. So we didn't get into, we talked about Story Midwife, but we didn't say what it is. Mm -hmm. So did you, I'm guessing you didn't name yourself that. Did you name yourself yes, that? Yes, I did name myself. Explain what it is and then why you chose. Sure. I, I think I understand it, but mm -hmm. yeah, and I'll probably makes sense once you explain and what you, you translate do. What yeah. I, yes no i can completely understand you if people can't that's that's their problem they can listen to it on slow <laughs> very slow <laughs> so i am a recovering journalist so that is my background i come from journalism and media production documentary and all that uh, i never felt really comfortable in the power dynamic of journalism yeah. so I always kind of question my role in in this field what does it mean what what is newsworthy who gets to decide who gets to tell the story right because even with the best intention you you journalist you storyteller you are the one who is gonna make that decision there's who, also no empathy yeah, I mean that's that's not you what you're. Yeah, you're you're not. That's not. Uh, it's not required. I think most journalists do have empathy, and I think most of us get into the field because they think we believe that we are serving community. Mm -hmm. So, but the, the but standard. You're not really allowed to. You're not allowed to immerse yourself. You're not allowed. You have to be objective. Yeah. Which is something that I always question and never really understood because I can be objective. I can be fair. I can mm -hmm. be transparent. I'm a human being, so by nature, I have my own opinions yeah. and feelings. So I, you know, in my career, um, I felt always pretty out of place. And uh, so as I went on my journey, literally <laughs> in other places and in other fields, I um, started to experiment with other ways of telling stories because that's always been my passion and my drive but in a way that felt more, felt more collaborative and more mm -hmm. authentic to the people that I would engage with. And so as I started to do that and really immerse myself in communities and um, kind of be becoming really close to people in, in a way that is not objective, mm -hmm. um, people started to question what I was doing. Like that is not journalism anymore. And again, I don't have a strong identity of any kind mm -hmm. <laughs> so that that wasn't a big problem for me to say well then I'm not a journalist that's fine this is what I feel I want to do so whatever it is this is what I'm doing and so as I moved further and further away from you know more traditional journalistic practices and experimenting more and more with participatory and collaborative practices uh, I find myself and then Actually, that's how it really this whole thing. Initially, my title was thoughtful listener. Mm, that I was like really that. because I felt like at the end of it, what is that that I do? That's what I do. That's what my function. I'm a channel. I'm not mm. much else. And then I became pregnant, and I went through labor, and I had a midwife, 
And so then it dawned on me that what I do really is sort of, you know, that is kind of my role, except I don't deliver babies, but I deliver Mm -hmm. (laughs) stories. The stories are there. I don't make them. They exist. If I tell them or not, they exist. People tell them. And my role is to really facilitate the process of people telling their own personal stories, Mm -hmm. community, uh, self-determining, self-asserting their narrative. Mm -hmm. And my role is to support that process, which is very often very painful. And some of my projects were really, uh, still now they are with actually pretty vulnerable um, individuals and communities. I've done lots of uh, storytelling projects with um, young people in the foster care system oh, and wow. like their parents and the foster parents and all mm-hmm. the side of that uh, relationship uh, and many other uh, working in juvenile detention centers and so on. So often my role has been to be there and hold someone's hands in telling mm-hmm. the story and, and being the listener and, being, and holding space. And then I do have technical skills that I share. Mm-hmm. And so that also the, the hope is that through this process, people are also empowered to continue telling stories yeah. with whatever medium they choose to. It's interesting when you're talking, um, I had two thoughts. One is you seem to be drawn to trauma, which isn't a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Because I have yet we were just talking about this on the last podcast, to find somebody that I'm attracted to or has something good to say that has not experienced some kind of trauma. They might not call it trauma, mm-hmm. but when they're telling their story, you, you can hear it and you're like, oh, we're the same. And then the other thought that I had was, um, I think I lost it. Yeah, it'll come back to me, mm-hmm. but but I um, but I want you to. So the beautiful thing too about what you said is thoughtful listener is beautiful, but is not the same as bringing a story into the world. Which you are more than a conduit. You are a conduit of like. Here's the platform holding that hard, sometimes traumatic space for somebody to retell a story that when you retell a story, you have to look down the cave of the darkness. And sometimes the fear is you're going to slip back into the darkness. So you hold space, holding space for that. It's similar. I just realized it to the work I do as a spiritual director is like I can hold the space for the worst possible thing to come out and I can be there with you in it and I can try to hold you together while you tell it um but a thoughtful listener is one needed in the world, but it's different than bringing something out. Cause there's a platform, there's, I'm sure you have to ask clarifying questions. It's a process. It's, it's definitely, there is a process in create, it's a space that happens intentionally. So it's, 
as I kind of developed my, my practice, whatever you want to call this, I realized that yes, it wasn't just being a, a, a thoughtful listener or, or a caring person listening because there is a process in, um, again, creating a space for a new story mm -hmm. to be told, right? Mm -hmm. Because people with trauma or even people with, uh, you know, pain that maybe we don't we don't call trauma whatever yeah. it is that that brought us together in this moment um we do retell our stories over and over in our yeah. head to ourselves yeah. that's why we go back to the idea often we get stuck and when you let's say you meet a young person who is uh, incarcerated um the first story that they think you want them to tell is what they did what awful thing they did mm. to end up there mm -hmm. so that's the first that's their narrative. They yeah. are, it's the know, story they're telling themselves. Themselves as a story that, as a community, we tell yeah. them, and uh, they are the worst things that they ever done. That's who they are, and so I find that the role of someone like me is often just to ask a question, an unexpected question. Mm -hmm. That's why I call them generous questions. Mm -hmm. Well, what else? I meet you here, but I could meet, you know, I could have met you somewhere else. And so what else, what else, what, what, what do you like to do? Mm -hmm. uh, what do you see for your future? And often people in trauma don't, ha don't have someone asking that question. Yeah. It's just about the, it's just spiraling yeah. around the trauma. Which is, you know, there is a purpose. I mean, yeah. that's why you go to therapy and all that. I'm not a therapist. So what I can do is to be curious, genuinely curious about you and your journey, because truly what what we can do for each other is to be genuinely curious and yeah. attentive to every story matters. Yeah. You, you don't, whatever you're going to share with me in an authentic and generous way from your side will transform me too. So yeah. it's a, oh, absolutely. it's a, my role. So the storytelling process, the way I see it is a relationship. It's not a transaction mm -hmm. where I squeeze out a story out of yeah. you and we make a juicy story about a flood or about uh, yeah. you know, the tra most traumatic thing that ever happened to you, they, what I can do for you is to ask you what else. Well, and I think when I hear the Vanport stories, now that you, you said what you just said, often the, the flood is the small piece. Like there's a story, I can't remember the woman's name, but she moved from somewhere else. Her family is white. She ends up meeting a kid, either lives near her or goes to school with her. They become best friends, but she has to keep it a secret yeah. from her father. Yeah, Miss Anna Donner. Yeah. That's, yeah. And she, doesn't she end up finding him? Yeah, when it was too late. Yeah. He, would, he passed away. Uh, but he left an indelible mark yeah. on her life. And so that's the story that comes out, which is a beautiful story. Also the story where you've got the young interviewer. Is he interviewing his grandfather? No, that's not his grandfather. That is... They uh, got such a rapport, it seems like. It's a beautiful relationship that came because stories build communities, build relationships. Yeah. And that's a beautiful example. Uh, Arinze was only, I think, eight or nine when he became our youngest so memory activist. And so we trained him to be the interviewer. And he expressed the desire to interview someone who was a kid his age during the oh. flood. And so we found 
uh, this lovely gentleman and they had this beautiful exchange they plan of going fishing together mm-hmm. and and then he the gentleman passed away but yeah it's uh, because stories are relationship again we go back to the question who gets to tell the story mm-hmm. who gets to ask the question so yeah. often it's that's why I'm not a journalist anymore I'm not very rarely I'm the one going out and asking questions but I can share how we can create a space for new yeah. story to emerge and that's how I uh, that's what I like to share with when we do workshops or even just yeah. in, in small teams like okay who who is the best person to have this relationship yeah yeah that's good and you can see it in the videos because people if there's a relationship they're going to be more vulnerable because they're going to feel heard and safe and then a new story that maybe they hadn't even thought of in years yeah. emerges so i want to like switch gears a little bit and and i want you to talk about how a small 6 month vision slash project ends up being a five year project which is not it's never gonna end. No because there's it's ne- not gonna it's never I mean you might be able to give it over to somebody at some point. You want it? And retire. <laughs> I don't think I'm I'm equipped for it, but thank you. I'm not equipped either. Not, That's the Well <laughs> you at least studied some things that are different than I studied. But the vision has I, I wanted you to speak on how I don't even know if it's managing, but how do you live under the weight of a vision that is bigger than you? Because that's usually what a vision ends up being. Not necessarily length of time, but way bigger than we ever saw or imagined. Way more people, way more impact. And so... How do you deal with that? Um, do you understand kind of what yeah, I'm asking? Yeah, okay, yeah. I'll stop talking. Um, that's a very good question. Uh, one one thing I want to clarify, of course, that this project and now it's a memory activist platform now include so many yeah. people, including Plays. you. Yes. And again, the project started as an oral history project, but then it became, and that's really probably what, what happens with visions. Like you, it starts with your own question, mm-hmm. uh, and then you start seeing answers and people on the same journey looking for those answers from different, in their different ways. So that the oral history project started to connect with a, a theatrical like play that was uh, uh, directed uh, by Damaris Webb, who became my, you know, the co-director of this organization mm-hmm. with me. And then there were people doing tours, and there were people uh, writing poetry. And so, I I think a, a vision that was pretty small, as usual, my personal. I mean, again, I wouldn't even call them vision. Again, they start at, with a question like, "What the heck happened here?" Usually, mm-hmm. that's or. Uh, um, there's something here that I don't understand, and it's a it's a almost like a survival uh, journey for me. Usually, mm-hmm. it's a very visceral. It's not intellectual at all. That's why I don't call it visions. Like, I need to figure this out. I'm here in this city. It, can I stay? I have a multiracial family. Is this healthy for us to be yeah. here? Right. So it's a very kind of selfish uh, start. Usually, yeah. your your spark. 
But then as you search for your answers and you start connecting the dots, you see other people along, you know, on your same journey in different ways. Yeah. And so that's how, you know, a small vision became sort of a movement by yeah. simply connecting people, right? Now, five years into this journey, it's very overwhelming. I mean, I can't lie that every other <laughs> month I feel like, what the heck? This you feel is like not... quitting? Yes, yes. It just... Well, because now it's a huge festival, but there's also things going on throughout the year. Yeah. And it's the, the structure of running an organization. So, Which is not what you had originally signed up no, for. I did this, no, I didn't. No. no. <laughs> That's the thing. It's you end up taking on tasks and roles that are not necessarily your passion mm-hmm. or nor you have uh, any any skills, skills for, for yeah. like you know grant writing and uh, managing budgets and uh, seeking out sponsorship yeah. especially as an introverted person all this stuff yeah. is deadly uh, yeah, but, but yet you <laughs> yet you do it because it serves that that initial spark mm-hmm. again i don't think it, there's anything uh, uh, altruistic or, or yeah, uh, of course that, that is very rewarding to do something that people are excited about and we all have fun doing, mm-hmm. but I would lie if the motivation was that I need this community for my own survival. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. it is without that, the, the drive is not, oh, let's get another grant so we can pay $2 more each of us. It's, yeah. well, if if I stay up this night to write this grant, I might be able to do that with that person, with that artist, and mm-hmm. and create a beautiful, you know, lunch for the elder. So, mm-hmm. and why? Yeah. Yes, because it's a good thing to do. But really, I need to be with you all. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I need this healthy, diverse uh honest, generous, vulnerable community that we created together. Yes. Well, it changes you. I mean, us. It changes us while we interact together because these aren't... It's not normally people that you would be around because it's multi-generational and um, diverse. Like, not only, um, you know different backgrounds, different like farming communities, city people, race, like it's everything. And rarely do you get that, that kind of group. I mean, in church maybe, but mm-hmm. then it can be most church experiences and I'm probably gonna offend people, but not my personal experience with the community that I led, but I think a lot of churches, you're just showing up Maybe you have a coffee time, you socialize with some people that are older than you, maybe, and then you leave and maybe there's a few things during the week and maybe you can go or not. But this is like, it changes you. It, it, when we went, um, you know, to do the celebration at the end and, um, you know, all different kinds of people, but there was like, 15 of us and all of us were different different ages different backgrounds in a small room eating food together sharing stories it's awkward yes it's uncomfortable yeah but i love that that. yeah if you get and that's the thing that 
if you are a part of a community that embraces the awkward and the non-binary of us all, then you're used to that and you build up, I wouldn't say resistance to it, but you build up a love of it. Mm -hmm. Like when something is sanitized, it's just so boring to me. So I know we're on a time constraint. You are a busy woman doing a lot of things. So I want, unless there's something else you want to say about that, I feel like it, that, that giant, beautiful, the giant, beautiful thing that Vanport Mosaic You can call become. it mess. It is a mess, It is too. a mess. I think most beautiful things... Are messy. Are messy. There's a... When I went... When I lived in Holland, I went to Corrie Tin Bohm's house. She survived the Holocaust, and most of her family did not, but they hid the Jews in a closet. And I, I took the tour. And at the end of the tour... Somebody is saying, you know, they're showing this beautiful needlepoint of a, of a crown, like a golden crown on this, like, beautiful purpley blue velvet background that one of, I think one of the sisters had needlepointed or whatever you call it. And, you know, she's, she's so, showing this beautiful detailed crown and then she flips it over and she said, but this is the beautiful part. And it's all of the oh knotted gosh, threads. And she goes, this is this is the beautiful part. This is what Corey loved, is the mess. Oh, I love this. Because so that's, what that's what's behind this beautiful mm-hmm. thing, is this mess of people working out their mm-hmm. differences mm-hmm. and arguing and, you know, wrestling mm-hmm. with stuff. And I love that. And I love that you're creating with other people a container that holds that mess and create something beautiful from it. And also the mess is beautiful. How do you self-care with something that can be so time-consuming and so overwhelming? Because you have a daughter. Mm-hmm. How old is Viola? Nine. Nine. Whew. She's amazing human being. <laughs> well, because she, she's raising herself. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about a messy project. There is somebody, <laughs> that that girl holds so much creativity. It's like, when I think of her, she's like a small powerhouse. And it's almost like the light inside her can't be contained. And I think of it like it's coming out her ears and her eye sockets and her toes. Oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> she pretty much runs. She's a piece of work, but yeah. Runs the <laughs> So you've got a lot, mm-hmm. um, like most women. How do you take care of yourself? I don't. Okay. Well, what, how is that? What, <laughs> what maybe could you do? <laughs> well, you know, I, as many women, I have all this good intention. Mm-hmm. And then so once in a while, I decided I'm going to go to yoga three times a week. I wake up at six, I go, and I feel great. And then every, everything else is more urgent yeah, than my health. squishes in. Yeah. So I have many things that I love to do, hiking, yoga, all the good things, reading. Uh, I would lie if I wouldn't share with you that, uh, no, I, I don't take care of myself in any way, not you know, my health. I don't never go to, have, you know, to go to the doctor. I, yeah. I'm bad at 
about that too. Yeah, yeah, but uh, we'll exchange. I can't find our good doctor. Exactly, that's a whole. If there's any Kaiser doctors out there that that aren't assholes. And know how to like not traumatize yeah. people while they're there. Please get in touch. You have already two new patients. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I don't do You'll it. You'll be so. part way there <laughs> to success. I feel almost that um, the work that I do is so consuming in a beautiful way, truly. Yeah. That, um, yeah, it's, uh, it doesn't leave, almost I forget about myself, which mm. is a little dangerous. Mm. Like I... I become so much of a channel that I am so not in touch with my my own stories, yeah. my own needs. One practice I do have that I think keeps me truly sane and uh, really happy. I mean, I do feel I'm overall a very happy person, as happy you can be at this moment in mm-hmm. history. Yes. Uh, as a very privileged person who gets to do something I love. Mm-hmm. Uh, I practice gratitude. So what mm. I do every day... That's like a spiritual... You're merging yeah. the two. Yeah. Spiritual practice and a, and a self-care. Yeah. So I do that by myself and with my lovely family, my husband and my daughter. We do that in, in the evening together. And mm, we, no matter how crappy day or how frustrated you are, exhausted, we end the day sharing with each other what we are grateful for. Mm, and initially, you know, that. it's hard to find something. Maybe it's like, thank you for making this disgusting dinner. You know, it can, be, it can start <laughs> yeah. like that. Like, yes. oh, thank you for making yes. dinner, if you can yeah. call it uh, that way. <laughs> and then as you think, little things start um, coming up and, yeah. and, and you feel the luckiest person on earth. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I've trialed and errored is the gratitude. I do want to ask you what you want to plug, but I do want to say thank you for your vulnerability because I think that that is a real problem with, not with women, but for women. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to talk about. And I said something the other day, Todd and I were walking the dogs and he said, well, isn't that the patriarchy? And I was like, "Mm, what do you mean? Because it was a similar, we were Mm -hmm. talking about a similar topic and he said, we have the luxury to not even think about it. It's just, we get our time. We don't have to think about how it affects you or how it affects our kids because society lets us not think about it. You know, and we're constantly asked about it. So I appreciate your vulnerability and I think it is a problem that most women face and, um, it's a real problem, especially, I had a, I, and I struggle with it as well, but when I did, when I pastored the community of the bridge, I loved it so much that it was very hard for me to self-care. But also, when there was trauma and emergencies, I realized that I needed to because then I did not have the energy, even, as, even though I'm passionate about even those hard things, I want to be involved and present, then I had to slowly find little things um, to do, but it is very hard. So thank you for... Thank you for creating this space for my story. Yes, (laughs) you are welcome. So before we go, what do you want to plug? Well, uh, we have a screening, oral history screening and presentation about Vanport this coming Sunday, October 20th at PSU. And you can find information at www.vanportmosaic.org. 
the big thing is of course the festival in May, May 22nd to June 7th and this time we will explore as an overarching question, uh, the question is who gets to be American? Mm. And so we'll explore I'm that through theater, exhibits, conversations, mm-hmm. rituals, and all the good stuff, documentaries. Yeah. And there's lots of things that people can come to. You don't have to go to all of it, so don't get overwhelmed when you look at the schedule. <laughs> because even if you participated in one thing, like there's something that's at the Portland Expo Center, which happens to be the spot that the Japanese Americans were held in before they were sent to concentration camps all over the United States. So there is history within that building that holds trauma and story and um, needs to be felt and heard. And I wish somebody would say sorry for it, but Americans don't tend to like to own what they've done. But anyway, um, but it's a powerful, you can feel it in the place. Um, And I think it needs to be acknowledged. And I love that it is being acknowledged through the Vanport Mosaic. So please find Lara on social media, on the vanportmosaic.org and- um, At your nearest cafe. Yeah, at your nearest cafe, <laughs> working feverishly. Um, thank you thank so you, much for Angie. your time. And everybody else knows where to find me at angiefatal.com and I'll talk to you next time. Do you want to say anything? Ciao. <laughs> B-B-B-B-B, B-side, B-side. You're on the B-side, B-side, where the funny stuff is found. Yeah. Okay, we are back. And I would like you to, every time we look at each other, we laugh. So whatever. <laughs> Okay, let's just stare. Let's stare. This can just go on my B sides. This is all the the funny stuff that happens. But I'm not sure why every time we look at each other we laugh, and we look really good right now. We, yeah, I even washed my hair. Ooh, so did no, I didn't. <laughs> a, I did take a shower for a podcast. <laughs> it will be so. Critical. I am going to take a picture of us, so okay, it's so good see, that you washed good. your hair. Oh, yeah, they still look. Like I want you to present well. Okay. But when, like, um, I totally forgot his name, the artist. Hank Pender? Hank Pender. We were in his studio, and, oh, man, I wanted Hank to like me so bad because he's Dutch. I lived in Holland. I don't think he didn't like me, but I'm probably a little too needy. He loved Todd. (laughs) Like, of course, I want Hank to like me so bad. And he's like, he and Todd, just total bonding. Anyway.